Welcome to an Impact Ministries production, brought to you by Impact Ministries World Changers, changing the way the world sees God. Learn how you can become a world changer today by visiting www.impactministries.com or drjimrichards.com. Now, here's your host, founder of Impact Ministries and developer of Heart Physics, the self-development program that changed thousands of lives around the world, Dr. Jim Richards. Hey, I'm Jim Richards. I want to welcome you to this week's Cyber Church. I am telling you, I don't know if this will mean to you what it means to me, but this particular message stirs up so many incredible sensations of connection and unity and love and bondedness to, you know, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're calling this message, The Groom Calls. Now, remember, this series is about the rapture, uh, hope, and comfort, because the rapture is supposed to be something that we look forward to that gives us encouragement, that gives us hope. A conf- the word hope means confident expectation of a good outcome, of good things. It gives us cope, hope. It gives us comfort. And so, so man, I'm telling you what, uh, we don't need to be looking at the world as it's going into darkness, and we don't need to get our hearts troubled by looking at everything that's going wrong. We need to get our hearts established in hope and in comfort and, of course, in faith because we know God's good for his word. We know he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So let's just ju- jump right into this. Now, Jesus would speak so many times, and he would talk about the bridegroom. Now, when we read about the bridegroom, this is always been such a tragedy in my heart to, to see how we do this. You know, we take the cultural concepts uh, of the New Testament and even of the Old Testament, and rather than us coming to understand those concepts so we get the subtlety of the messages that Jesus is preaching and teaching, our tendency is to, to not look at their culture, but try to interpret it in light of our culture. And the Bible wasn't written to, to our culture per se, and the types and the shadows and all of these things that Jesus used to co- convey truth, uh, they're not even in effect in, in our society in the 21st century. So, so we lose so many of the things that Jesus was attempting to convey. Now, I'm not saying we lose everything, but we lose so many things. There was a very definite model of what happened when a man and a woman became engaged, and, uh, and when they became engaged, they were betrothed. Every aspect of, their, of being married was already brought into, into the agreement except uh, sexual intimacy. And uh, other than that, every aspect of being betrothed was exactly like being married as far as the commitments that you had to keep and you know, all, all those kinds of things. So the whole concept of betrothal and uh, uh, the process that a man and woman would go through to come together and start their family, it was, it was dear to uh, the children of Israel, and, is, and it's dear to me, and particularly in what this conveys about what we have in Jesus. In John 14, 1, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I always remind people, anytime the Bible tells you to do anything, all you have to do is choose it 
and the power of God goes to work in your heart. So when you're getting troubled, you have to say, no, Jesus said not to be troubled, so I choose not to be troubled. I choose to be filled full of peace or joy or whatever. And I'm telling you, you can instantaneously move from trouble to joy. And if you don't know how to do that, I'll be glad to teach you how to do that. I have an incredible program called Heart Physics that teaches people how to live from the heart and not from the head. But anyhow, he goes on in verse two, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, to the average American reading this, we might get some uh, similarities of, of, of what he's talking about, but boy, we miss the impactful, su subtle statements that he's making that open up all kinds of understanding about this. But I tell you this, everybody standing there listening to Jesus when he taught these things, uh, unless they hardened their heart against God completely, they understood what he was, that, what he was talking about. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and where I go, you know, and you know the way there. So, so we have this kind of a little bit of a weird uh, series of verses here that we sort of understand what's going on, but we sort of don't understand what's going on. Now, what I'm going to do, I am not going to waste a whole lot of time looking up every single scripture that has to do with the, with the aspects of the, the marriage, of the betrothal, of, of what happens. But I'm going to walk through each of these so that you can see the specific details of how this works out and what this means to us as believers. Now, in my audio series, you know, I always make an audio series for people who have the time, the desire, and the passion to take a deep dive and who want to go more into a vein of discipleship, knowing how to apply this to our lives. And so I will, in the audio version of this, go into a lot more scriptural detail so that you have every piece that you need. But, but here, let's just jump right in this right now. We don't, we don't want to waste any time. Uh, so we, whenever a young man would become interested in a young woman, he would approach the young woman's uh, father about entering into a betrothal contract or an engagement contract. And like I said, the engagement, the engagement contract was, was that legally they were married and everything except, except physical intimacy uh, was there and was there present. And, and they got to build a relationship apart from being dominated and controlled just by sex and the sex drive. But when the groom approaches the father and the father is, is open to it, then, then actually the bride and the groom would probably uh, talk, uh, excuse me, the, the groom and the father would probably talk with the bride and they would have a discussion and an agreement would, would be made and very probably an agreement would be written. It would be an agreement of marriage. And uh, then the groom would pay a price for the bride. We would know that in several different, that's common in several different cultures. And then the, then the, the bride and the groom 
would drink a cup of wine to seal the agreement. Now, I don't know if you're seeing the, the typology here of uh, the body of Christ. You know, uh, Jesus is the groom, and no man can come unto him but by the Father, which is the way it was as far as whenever there was going to be a marriage. And an agreement would be made, and so an agreement is made by uh, the Father uh, for Jesus to be our, our groom and to actually pay a purchase price. And the price that he paid was, in fact, uh, his life. He paid his life to have us as his bride. And then, um, and then of course, you have the cup of wine, which seals the agreement, which is very much like the, the communion cup, the cup of the blood of Jesus. And so then, the groom departs to the father's house where under the father's supervision, he will build a place for him and for the bride, because usually they would go to live with the, with the groom's family, and that's where they would build their dwelling place, because people lived in kind of commune type settings back in those days for protection uh, against, you know, the robbers and the bandits and all those kinds of things. When the, it's really interesting that when the groom departs, the bride has absolutely no idea when he will return. All she knows is that when wedding place, if you will, or the marriage place is prepared to the father's liking, that's kind of interesting to me, it's to the father's liking. Because, you know, with a young groom, the father wants to make sure that everything is done adequately so that every single need of the bride is actually met. And it's not until the father gives the approval that the son can actually go back to retrieve his bride. So, you know, many times a young groom would be gone a year, maybe even a couple of years and possibly have little or no contact at all with his future bride. And uh, I would assume that they had a particular blast of the trumpet or blast of the ram's horn that, uh, that she would recognize whenever when he would come to retrieve her. And oddly enough, as often as not, he came at night. And so uh, she could be in bed, she could be sleeping, but she would hear that particular sound that they agreed upon. And when she heard that sound, she knew that this was her groom who had come back to get her. Now, all the time that the, that the groom was away preparing a place to take his bride, the bride basically uh, did everything to prepare herself for meeting and going away with the groom whenever he came. Well, that's exactly what the church is supposed to do. And this is the exact model that Jesus left for us to understand was that, was that he, when he was raised from the dead, he was going away, he was going to prepare a place for us. And at some point in time, the father was going to speak to him. He was going to come back and he is going to take his bride out of this world completely to meet with him. And uh, and to go into what will ultimately become the marriage feast uh, of the Lamb. So all of this stuff very specifically 
talks about Jesus leaving, Jesus returning, catching us away in the air, us spending time with him until we come back and overthrow the Antichrist and his armies. Man, I am telling you, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting because in the book of Colossians and the book of Thessalonians, uh, Paul addresses the fact that people had been writing doctrinally erroneous letters and sending them to the churches as if they came from him, telling the churches that the resurrection or the rapture had already taken place and they had missed it. Now, you know, today, we don't, the day that we live in, nobody's going to go out and say, hey, the resurrection has already taken place. Well, actually, more so than you think. You know, there is a movement today called preterism. Uh, it used to be called Kingdom Now. It's had several different names in, in my lifetime. And preterism presents this idea that, in fact, all of the end-time scriptures have already been fulfilled. And so that means, uh, for all practicality, that the rapture's already happened. Uh, Jesus has already come back. He's just come back in a spiritual nature, and, and we don't recognize it. And so people really become confused about, okay, what's our role as a church? What is our role? Well, I got news for you. The church is never going to go out and conquer the world for Jesus and hand it to him. We've never done that. We've had 2,000 years to do that. The Bible prophesies that that is not how it's going to happen. So for all practical purposes, you have people really teaching that in a sense that the rapture is already gone because there is no rapture. All of that is just spiritual double talk. And I'm telling you something, you do not want to come into a place where you feel like the rapture is gone, that you have missed it, and you lose that sense of urgency about being about God's business and preparing ourselves as we wait for our bridegroom to come to take us away, to take us out of this world and take us into a totally different, uh, into a totally different realm. So the bride is busy preparing herself for the groom. And so when the father of the groom, when he approves, he sends the groom to, uh, uh, to fetch uh, the bride. And because now everything is ready, it meets all of the father's requirements. You know, I think about that sometimes. I think about the fact that even though Jesus has the exact mind of Christ, that God the Father is the one that pulls the trigger and says, okay, you know what? Everything is ready for your bride. Go get your bride. Now, he and the groomsmen go together to fetch the bride. And, you know, uh, he may give out a big shout. Uh, you know, one of his, his best man or one of his groomsmen probably sounds, you know, the ram's horn or whatever kind of horn uh, or signal that they're using. And so, you know, the bride, when she hears this, I just think about this uh, so very much because she's got her bags packed. She keeps her bags packed all the time. She, all, you know, she's got whatever clothing she is going to need to go to the uh, marriage and ultimately to the, to the marriage feast. And so, so all she's got to do, now they didn't have light switches back in those days, I'm sure all of you know, but basically, all she has to do is grab her clothes, flip the light switch, and get out the door. That, that's it. 
is no more complicated than that. But one of the interesting things that you start realizing when you look at the marriage feast uh, uh, culturally, as it was back in those days, there were no uh, preconditional terms that had to be met before the groom could come, other than preparing a place that met up to the father's uh, quality, if you will. Other than that, there was nothing here where the bride is that would give her any indication that, that the groom coming to get her was going to happen very quickly. Now, you know, go, go look at the parables, how many times the parables make reference to the bridegroom delaying. And by delaying, it's not saying that he was late. It's not saying that he didn't do his job like he should. By delaying, it just means postpone. It means that it, means that it kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer. And so when, there, when, the, when his servants uh, began to question if he would come back, they would start becoming irresponsible. They would become slack in their duties. They would start mistreating the people that they were supposed to serve in. Serve, go do a New Testament uh, search on bridegroom. You would be amazed at what you learn, and particularly amazed at what you learn when you realize that almost all of these parables that Jesus taught, not all the parables, but most of the parables that he taught were not about how to go to heaven or hell. It was about how to live in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and how you manage yourself so that you do not lose your reward. You don't lose your inheritance. It's not talking about whether or not you lose your salvation in most of those passages. It's talking about whether or not you lose or you keep uh, the, the inheritance that, that God has for you. So the, the groomsman and the groom, they go to fetch the bride. And as we said, uh, he, he doesn't go to the bride's house. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but the fact that he does not go to the bride's house uh, and, and take her from the father's house, it kind of speaks to me, you know, that there, are, there are a few different scriptures that talk about Jesus coming a second time to those who love his appearing, or, you know, different terminology, sort of like that. And so when I, when I look at the rapture, I don't know that this is something that happens that People all over the world suddenly get raptured, even if they don't want to be raptured, even if they don't want to be with God. I mean, they may be believers, but they may be afraid, and they may not even want to go to God. So I don't even know if those people actually qualify for the bride. I don't know if those people are even, uh, you know, are even going to respond positively when Jesus calls out and, and blasts the, uh, you know, the trumpet. I, it could be that many people are going to go like, I, I don't, I don't want to go. I, you know, stop thinking about it. If you're going, if you're going to put off this body and put on another body, then basically this means you're going to die. You're going to, you're going to have, you're going to have a few seconds of death because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have to get a new body before we can enter into uh, the kingdom of God. And so very probably this body just drops dead. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I, I can't tell you what that's going to look like. But just imagine, by the way, what's going to happen if suddenly 
all over the world, hundreds of millions of Christians suddenly drop over dead. Now we know we know they didn't drop over dead because we know they were just transformed. They just they just changed from one body to another body. But imagine what's going to happen here on earth. Imagine how the media and the press and the governments of the world are going to use this to slander Christianity. And you know, they'll, they'll turn this into they all committed suicide or they all died because of their beliefs or something like that. But, but this is going to be a, an incredible global event that you just absolutely cannot get around. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch this out here right now because I think it's worth uh, noting at this very moment. We need to realize that, that uh, um, at the rapture, this will set off a series of very specific, very definitive events, all of which will vindicate God, everything God's ever said, everything that God's ever done will be absolutely vindicated by all of these last things that happen throughout the last seven years on planet Earth and through then into the beginning of the millennium where we will rule and reign with Jesus for a, a thousand years. Now, stop and think about it. Uh, the crucifixion was one of the great blunders of, of Satan. He thought by killing Jesus, he would finally overcome and he would finally win this battle. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. So next time, next time somebody teaching demonology starts trying to tell you what a genius the devil is, you might want to just get up and leave because anybody that thinks that the devil is a genius evidently has not really studied their, their Bible really well. So, so Satan was convinced that this was his victory. As a matter of fact, the Bible says if he had known, he would not have crucified the Lord. Or he didn't understand what was going to happen by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, prophecy in the scripture is a really interesting thing because there's so much of what we think the devil knows. A lot of people think that the devil is omniscient, all-knowing, and that he's and that he's all powerful and that he can be everywhere at once like God. No, no, he didn't have any of those, any of those attributes. The primary way Satan knows what's coming next. One of the ways he knows what's coming next in your life is because you whine and you complain and you pretend like it's prayer. And basically all you're doing is telegraphing all the stupid things you're getting ready to do. So strategies against people, strategies against people who expose their hand are incredibly easy to create and incredibly easy to win. When it comes to the things about the kingdom of God, uh, the way Satan anticipated certain things and the way he created his strategies was by paying attention. You know, in the very beginning, the first prophecy about the Messiah was that it was going to be the seed of the woman. So what happens? Cain kills Abel. What happens? Uh, uh, it's a war just against the seed of the woman, the seed of the human race. The whole, the whole thing with the Nephilim and, and having, the, having these beings uh, that were evil and wicked and powerful. They were giants. They could do what seemed like supernatural feats. Uh, their whole goal was to wipe out basically the Son of Man, wipe out, wipe out the children 
of the women of the world so that no Messiah could come. So all down through biblical history, every time God would provide a guiding prophecy so that Israel or whoever was involved would understand kind of how to focus their attention and how to, how to have a sense of where they were going. Every time that happened, that narrowed down uh, the target that Lucifer would use to try to uh, cut off the Messiah. And so, you know, it gets, it gets so specific that in the book of Daniel, uh, we, we have a prophecy that tells the exact day that Jesus will declare himself as king coming into Jerusalem and, and the exact day that Jesus will be crucified. And so, you know, Satan evidently really was so full of himself. He thought he had this all figured out. He got him crucified. But the problem is he just would not stay dead. So now one of the big things that Satan is looking forward to is the rapture. How can he mess up the rapture? How can he alienate us from a personal resurrection where we spend eternity with God. We rule and reign with Jesus here for a thousand years. Then we spend eternity, um, you know, with God. Well, this is one of the reasons I believe the uh, rapture has to be imminent. It can't be defined exactly when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. There can't be signs. There can't be warnings. This is something that has to happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And so that's, that's the reason it's going to happen. Our job is to keep our heart alive and expectant for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the groom doesn't go forcibly take the bride out of the father's house. He blows a horn. It is her option. This is her last right of refusal here if she decides not to go. So the bride has lived for this moment from the time that the marriage contract was made, her clothes are ready. Uh, all she has to do is snuff out a candle and she's gone. And she will go out to the designated place with her attendants. They will meet the bridegroom uh, and his groomsmen. And then they will be taken away to the father's house where there will be a marriage, a marriage feast, a celebration. And that's exactly what is happening to us. That's what's going to happen in our lives. That's exactly what's going to happen as we come into this end time of the world. And we need to be incredibly aware of this, because if we are not aware of this, we will lose the urgency. So I want to encourage you, and I'm going to give you some exercises you can do, but I want you to go back and listen to this. I want you to think about, am I really ready for Jesus to actually come and get me, or am I dragging my feet for something else? Listen, I'll be talking to you next week. Listen to this two or three times before then. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Impact Ministries World Changers podcast with Dr. Jim Richards. If you like what you've just heard, we encourage you to share our web address, www.impactministries.com or drjimrichards.com with friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the resources section of our website from previous broadcasts and our videos. Join us next week for another great message by Dr. Jim Richards.